Avrahamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Father, I thank you for this Shabbat, Lord. I thank you for the opportunity that you have given us to gather together in worship in your presence. Lord, not just on any day, but on a day that you have set aside for us to experience your presence in our midst. Father, for a day that you have set aside for us to rest in the power of your presence. Lord, I pray that as we open up your word today, that you will speak, that you will breathe new life into us, that it be your words heard and received, your voice heard in this message today, Lord, that nothing in me be involved except that which you have previously ordained for this purpose. In the name of Yeshua Mashiach, we pray and everyone says, Amen and Amen. This week we're in Parsha Pichas. Parsha Pichas comes from Numbers 25, uh, verse 10 through uh, 30, verse 1. We are now one week removed from the end of the book of Numbers. I just want you to see how fast this year is passing by. It's crazy. Danielle and I were in the car yesterday and we were talking. It's half the year's gone by. It's July already. We're, we're not far from being in the middle of July if we think about it. Half the year's gone by already. This is ridiculous. Uh, uh, you know, in theory, they say that the reason it feels like it goes by faster is because each year that you're alive, 365 days takes up a uh, smaller percentage of your total lifespan. So it feels like it goes by faster. So when you're one year old, one year is your entire life. When you're, uh, you're 40 years old, one year is considerably less than your entire life. Um, and you can do the math from there. So, uh, but this year's just been crazy how fast it's flying by. Um, you know, we just released the, the High Holy Day schedule for this year, and my mind's already going, man, what are we doing? This is ridiculous. we got to get ready for this already. This is, it's, it's too fast. Um, but as we move through the book of Numbers, I, I say oh, that it really does have a purpose, I promise. My brain is fasting, but I promise there's a purpose all the um, the, the, I say all of that because when we're looking at the book of Numbers, a lot of people don't realize the time frame of the Torah and how all of this worked out. And I talked about this briefly at the beginning of, uh, of Numbers when we moved into the, the our show flowing through Numbers. Uh, but a lot of people don't realize the time frame of the book of Numbers, the time frame of the Torah in general. It takes us two years to get from Israel leaving Egypt to the end of the book of Leviticus. All right? So when we move into Numbers, we've already burned through two years of Israel's journey. 38 years of Israel's journey is the book of Numbers itself. It's not necessarily all chronological in Numbers. If you go Numbers 1 through 36, it's not necessarily all chronological. But as we look at the book of Numbers, it's 38 years of Israel's journey in one 36-chapter book. Right? We go to Deuteronomy in, in two weeks. We move into Deuteronomy, what I like to call the book that should have never been. When we move to Deuteronomy in a few weeks, it's about two to three weeks of Israel's journey. Right? I just want you to wrap your head around that for a moment. Because where we're at this week with Parsha Pinchas is the official end of the first generation of the nation of Israel that came out of Egypt and walked toward the promises of God. This week we read about the counting of the second generation, which means the first generation has officially died off. And the second generation will now have the freedom to cross into the promised land. As we roll into the book of Numbers, we recognize in this week's Parsha too that Moses is commanded by the Lord to climb up uh, the mountain and to uh, view the land that as far as he can see, but he can't actually go into the land because of striking the rock when he was told to speak to it. Um, but he's told to climb the mountain, he can see it, and then he'll be gathered unto his people. By the way, it's really interesting that nobody ever sees, we don't see anything in the Torah about Moses actually dying. Just as he climbed the mountain, we saw him again. Right. Just throwing that out there. I'm not saying he did or didn't. I'm just letting you ponder that for a little bit because he is on uh, you know, the Mount of Transfiguration with Elijah who didn't die. Just throwing that out there. You can work with that and process it how you want. I'm just letting you know. For 
the sake of thought. Uh, but, but we see that Moses dies on, on the mountain, or he's told when he's going to die. So in, in the book of Deuteronomy, he's taken the last couple of weeks to remind the second generation now of everything that the first generation experienced, of all of the miracles, the signs and the wonders that the Lord did bringing them out of Egypt, of all of the mistakes that the first generation made. So that they don't in turn make the same mistakes again. As a Messianic rabbi, having the opportunity to plant our own congregation, one of the first things that I recognized in doing so is I worked under five different Messianic rabbis in four different states, five different states. Jeez, just as many states as I did. Congregations. Uh, in five different states, uh, I helped plant uh, uh, five or six congregations, including one on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Uh, and one of the beauties of what I got to experience is I got to not only learn what to do, but I got to learn from the mistakes that those that went before me made so that I don't also make those mistakes. So I learned what not to do as well. And so when we started our congregation, I was perfectly fine with making new mistakes and learning from those, but I didn't want to make the same mistakes I watched everybody else make. I wanted to learn from their mistakes and be able to move forward from there to make my own. Um, and so as we were starting our creation, I got to really take take that to heart. And this is what we see here with, uh, with the, the second generation in the book of Deuteronomy, is they have the opportunity to learn from the mistakes of their forefathers so that they don't make the same mistakes, so that they actually get to see the fruition of the promises of God as they go into uh, Israel, the, the land of Israel, and take possession of God's promises and blessings to them. So if you have your scriptures, go ahead and open up to Numbers chapter 26, beginning with verse 1. Parshat Pinchas, as you're turning there, begins with the continuation of the story of Pinchas, who uh, is the man that drove the spear through the, the uh, uh, Simeonite and, and Midianite, uh, the Simeonite prince and the Midianite uh, uh, lady who was leading uh, them into uh, uh, worshiping Baal, uh, which is a false god, and everything that's going on with that. Uh, so as we see this, we see last week he spears her, and then this week it picks up with uh, the Lord making a covenant of blessing to Pinchas. And if you notice at the beginning of the part, it says, Pinchas bin Elazar bin Aharon uh, HaKohen. Uh, uh, Pinchas, the son of Elazar, the son of Aaron, the, the, the priest, the Kohen. Uh, and the reason it says the son of Elazar, the son of, of uh, Aaron, is because Pinchas was alive when Aaron and his sons were consecrated in the priesthood. So Aaron and his sons, the Torah specifically says, Aaron and his sons were consecrated in the priesthood, and their descendants that come after them would be consecrated into the priesthood from there. But uh, Pinchas was already alive. And so there's nothing that gives us any signal in here that Pinchas was ever a part of the consecration. Because it talks about the descendants that come after that, not the descendants that were already alive at that point. And so the reason that the Parsha this week says the son of Elazar, the son of, of uh, Aaron, is because Pinchas is the son of Elazar who was married to Jethro's daughter. Uh, and so as he's married to a Gentile woman, Pinchas was a son of a, a Israelite and of a Gentile. And so Pinchas wasn't officially part of the priesthood just yet. But in this action, in the act of zeal that he put forth, uh, he receives the covenant, not only the covenant of peace, but the covenant of the priesthood. And he's brought into the priesthood, and it's an eternal covenant, but priesthood between him and the Lord from then on through all of his generations. 
And so we see this continuation. So it says the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, to point out that he is not only in the descendancy of Aaron and rightfully a priest, but also that he's being made a priest in a new kind of a way. And it's really interesting because that also shows that Yeshua being made as the high priesthood or Melchizedek and everything goes along with that. And this kind of transition that's available in the, in the will of God in the, the narrative of the priesthood. So as we move from Pinchas, we move directly into chapter 26 and the numbering of the second generation of Israel. So verse 1 says, After the plague, Adonai said to Moses and Eleazar, uh, son of Aaron the Kohen, saying, Take a head count of the entire community of B'nai Israel, the children of Israel, sons 20 years old and upward, by their ancestral house, all who can serve in Israel's army. So Moses and Eleazar, uh, the Kohen, spoke with them on the Moabite plains by the Jordan across from Jericho, saying, Just as Adonai, Moses, Adonai commanded Moses, a census will be taken of all men of B'nai Israel who came out of Egypt from 20 years old and upward. So notice here it says they're at the Jordan River overlooking Jericho, right? So just so you see perspective here, they're back where they messed it all up in the first place, right? They're back here again. The first generation messed everything up here. Now they're back. They're looking over. They can see. They can taste. They can smell the promises of God. And they're just waiting to take charge of that. And so here the second generation is being counted. We go forward to verse 51. It says, these sons of Israel totaled 601,730. For those that can do the math from the beginning of numbers when the first generation was counted, that's approximately, I think it's 1,980, give or take, shorter than there was in the first count. And a large part of that is the, the decrease in the numbers of the tribe of Simeon because of the actions of, uh, uh, of the Simeon, uh, Simeon prince, the Simeonites, uh, and everything that went on in last week's Parsha. And then verse 63, we skip forward one more time. These were numbered by Moses and Eleazar the Kohen when the, they counted B'nai Israel on the plains of Moab across from Jericho. Not one of them was among those counted by Moses and Aaron the Kohen when they counted B'nai Israel in the Sinai wilderness. Because Adonai had said they would surely die in the wilderness. Not one of them was left except Caleb son of Jephunneh and Joshua son of Nun. Right? So right out the gate is telling us nobody else was left from the first generation. They had all died off. As a matter of fact, that plague that came after the, the uh, incident at Peor, that plague wiped out the remaining of the first generation. So it's interesting. I just want to point this out because I love when we see this imagery in Scripture of Jew and Gentile one, uh, being one people coming together. And as believers in Messiah Yeshua, as part of a Messianic community, we believe wholeheartedly in the reality that the blood of the Lamb has brought together Jew and Gentile as one people. And so we see, as I said before, Pinchas was the, uh, becomes a priest, but he's the son of a, uh, an Israelite. And a, uh, a Gentile is the son of, uh, for the sake of nomenclature, although the term wasn't really used yet, but for the sake of nomenclature, he's the son of a Jew and a Gentile. And he becomes a high priest in Israel. Then we go to the end of the Parsha, and it says, everyone from the first generation was dead except Caleb and Joshua. Joshua was Jewish. Caleb, for those that aren't aware, and you've heard me talk about it, you've been here before, but for those that aren't aware, Caleb was not actually a descendant of Israel. Caleb was a Kenizzite. If you go back to Genesis, when God promises Abraham the land, you'll recognize that the Kenizzites were one of the original inhabitants of the land of Canaan. They weren't Israelites. They weren't descendants of Abraham. Yet here is Caleb, who not only is a Kenizzite, who is a part of Israel and considered a part of Israel, 
But he's the head of the tribe of Judah. When the spies are sent in the land, he's the spy that represents Judah. All right? So we see that it, it was uh, a Jew and a Gentile that give us a high priest. It's a Jew and Gentile that lead us into the promised land. Ultimately, we see that it's taken several Jews and Gentiles to get us Messiah, Yeshua. Uh, right? They look at Abraham and Sarah. Abraham was the first Jew. Sarah couldn't be. Isaac was Jewish. Uh, Rebecca couldn't be. Jacob was Jewish. So he married four Gentiles. And from Jews and Gentiles, we get the 12 sons of Israel who all marry Gentiles. We get the tribes of Israel who for a while all marry Gentiles until we finally were enough that we could actually marry Jews. And as things continued, the people continue to grow. We see Ruth come in and the blatant image of Jew and Gentile becoming one there and Messiah coming through that lineage. And so we see all of this. And I just want you to grasp this. Everything in God's plan has always required Jew and Gentile. Just throwing that out there, right? Because God didn't create Jew and Gentile. He created Adam and Eve, and he called out one particular family that we now know as the Jewish people to be a light to the rest of the world so that Jew and Gentile could be reunited together again as one. So it's just a little side thing there for you. But uh, out of all of this, what we recognize is we're at the end of Israel's journey. We've only got a few more weeks left in the actual 40-year time frame before the second generation crosses into the promised land and sees the beauty of the promises of God become reality until they see with their own eyes what the 12 spies saw, which is that the land is exactly as God said it would be, and they take possession of God's promised land. And so as we're standing here at the Jordan River and we're recognizing all of this happening, what we recognize is that the first generation who all they knew was how to rely on Egypt to provide for them, the first generation who, although they saw the signs and wonders and the miracles of God, never truly fully believed in God's power and ability, never fully entirely believed that Adonai is the only God, they still kind of cleave to the pagan polytheistic mindset that they had developed when they were in Egypt, even down to at Sinai when Moses was gone for a few days too long. They build a golden calf and begin to worship it and say, this is the God that led us out of Egypt. We see that this first generation, all they knew was to return back to. All they knew was to, to, to rely back on and fall back when things got tough on what they always knew beforehand. So that first generation wasn't able to actually take possession of the promised land because they didn't truly have a full and real faith in God's promises and a full and real faith in what God can and will do for his people. They never really had a full faith in God himself at all. But then we see the second generation. And the second generation is a, uh, an absolute uh, uh, just position to the first generation. The second generation only knew the provision of God. The second generation only knew that they wore the same clothes and walked in the same shoes for 40 years. The second generation only knew that God miraculously, divinely provided food every morning. They woke up and there's food waiting for them outside the door. All they knew was God's provision. They didn't know anything else. All they knew was miraculous. They didn't know anything else. All they knew was the divine hand of God. They didn't know anything else. They didn't rely on what they learned in Egypt. They didn't rely on I mean, All they knew was to rely on God. And so the first generation had to fade away because they didn't fully trust in God. The second generation, because they were able to and only knew relying on God's faithfulness, they were able to take possession of the promised land. They were able to walk in the fullness of the promises of God. But it took the second generation to be able to see that come to fruition. And as we look at this, it's a powerful, powerful image. Because over and over again, this first generation continues to mess up. And the second generation learns some lessons from the first, right? We see in uh, the, the book of Joshua, right out the gate, that when Joshua gets ready to send a couple of spies, he sends them in private, not in front of the entire nation like Moses did. He didn't send 12, he sent two. Why? Because only two of the 12 came back with good reporting figures, at least this way, I got a 50-50 shot. 
right? So he sends them in the promised land. He says, go spy out the land and come back and talk only to me. So they go into the promised land. They come back and they talk only to him. And they come back and say everything is exactly as the Lord said. But not only that, they bring back another message that those living in Canaan, the Canaanites, have been scared to death for 40 years of the promises of God. They believe these people that God ultimately says they're too far gone for hope. These people believe more in what God said he could do and would do through Israel than the Israelites did. And so they come back to just Joshua and they bring back this message. And, and guess what? Joshua, learning the lesson from before, stands up and says, all right, let's do this. Let's go. And they cross the Jordan River. And what do they see? They see the same miracles that happened leaving Egypt. They see the waters part. They walk through on dry ground, so on and so forth. They see all of this happen. Uh, and exactly as it happened in Egypt, the second generation experiences the divine power of God in this miraculous way. But it took that second generation arising. It took this, this new generation to come forward to be able to walk forward in the promises of God. How many of you believe fervently that God has promises and blessings for your life? How many of you recognize that he has a purpose for you, not just being alive, but breathing his breath within you? And that's across the board. That's for believers and non-believers. That's for every human being alive because we all breathe the breath of God. That's what was breathed in us at the creation, the foundation of the creation. When Adam and Eve were created, God breathed the breath of life into them. And that is what flows in our lungs. When we sing that song, it's your breath in our lungs, so we pour out our praise. Why do we pour out our praise? Because it's his breath praising him. And we give that back unto him. We breathe the breath of God, which means he has a purpose for us. He has a purpose for each and every one of us. He has a purpose for your friends and your family who do not yet know Messiah. And that's why he wants them to find the truth of his salvation, the truth of Yeshua's salvation, because he has a purpose. But you know, there's also something unique with that. You and I are, in essence, a first generation of ourselves. And the first generation who walked in sin, who only knew sin, who only knew the old ways, can't actually take possession of the promises of God. We can't actually walk in the fullness of what God has in store for us because we still are constantly tied up in what happened before. Uh, I, I jokingly talk about it quite a bit, but when we look in the Gospels when Yeshua uh, was put on the cross and he uh, was buried and the disciples were like, hey, what do we do now? And we thought we had this, we thought we had a career here. We thought things were good. We thought he was going to restore the Davidic kingdom and everything was going to be good and he's gone and We've invested everything for three years in them. What do we do now? What was it, Peter? Peter of all people, right? What was it Peter did? Went back fishing. It's what he used to know. It's what he did. That's how he provided before Messiah. I don't know what else. I'll go back to what I did before. And, and how many of us do the same thing? When things get a little rough, we tend to revert back to what we used to do. Right? But are we who we used to be? So it's never going to work out. Aside from that, it really didn't work out before, right? If we're honest with ourselves, it really didn't work out before. Right? It seemed to only make things worse. But we always revert back to what we used to be. Um, if we go forward to, uh, to the Gospels, particularly John chapter 3. John chapter 3, verse 1, we see uh, a discussion between Yeshua and a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And by the way, it's really interesting. Nicodemus kind of sneaks in at night so nobody sees him. So nobody knows that he's going to talk to Yeshua. Sneaks in at night, he goes in to, uh, to see Yeshua. Verse 1, it says, Now there was a man, a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jewish people. He came to Yeshua at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you, a teacher, have come from God. For no one can perform these signs which you do unless God is with him. Yeshua answered him, Amen, amen, I tell you, unless one is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In other translations, you may see, unless one is born again, the Greek word there can mean born again, 
or it can be born from above. In other words, born from the heavenlies. Uh, so he says that uh, unless one is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus said to him. He cannot enter his mother's womb a second time and be born, can he? Verse 5, Yeshua answered, Amen, amen, I tell you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What is born of the flesh is flesh. What is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be surprised that I told you, you all must be born from above. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. So Yeshua says right out the gate, you must be born from above. You must be born again. You must be born anew. In other words, we, when we see Yeshua and we see the immersion in water, it tell, the, the scripture tells us we're being immersed, we're being baptized, that we're immersed into Yeshua's death and we come out of the water into Yeshua's resurrection, right? When we look at Israel coming out of Egypt, where there's this, this narrative, this imagery of, of a child being born and coming through the birth canal, even down literally through Israel coming through the, the waters parted on dry ground and coming out the birth canal. When we look at the, the, the being born again, this renewal and baptism, this renewal and immersion, there's this image of going in and dying and coming out again through the womb, coming out again through the birth canal into, uh, into the resurrection of Yeshua. We see this imagery there. And he says, unless you're born of, uh, on, from on high, unless you're born again, unless you're born fresh of spirit, you will, uh, spirit in heaven, you will never be able to enter the kingdom of God. You will never be able to see the promises of God. What is the kingdom of God? It's the new heaven and new Jerusalem, right? Where does the scripture say the new heaven and new Jerusalem will descend? Here, where the old Jerusalem was, right? It says, uh, heaven and earth be rolled away, the new heaven and new Jerusalem descend upon the earth. Why? Because God is restoring what he had originally intended to be perfect that we messed up. He's restoring it. He's renewing it. We're not going into some far off distant galaxy somewhere. We're coming back here. I know a lot of people don't like that. I know it's a rough thing to listen to because this world is horrible. But guess what? This world won't be this world anymore. It'll be restored and renewed. It'll be his eternal kingdom. Uh, but in order to enter that kingdom, just like in order to enter the promised land, it requires us being born anew, being born again. It requires the next generation, the regeneration of who we are, of who God intended for us to be. We go to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah. In his great mercy, he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Messiah Yeshua from the dead. An incorruptible, undefiled, and unfading inheritance has been reserved in heaven for you. What is it the Lord kept saying about the promised land? That it was an eternal inheritance for the people of Israel, right? An incorruptible, undefiled, unfading inheritance has been reserved for you in heaven. In heaven, because it's the heavenly kingdom, it's the new heaven, new Jerusalem, that we, marred by sin, haven't yet and cannot destroy and ruin and mar and make despicable. Verse 5, by trusting you are being protected by God's power for a salvation ready to be revealed in this last time. Verse 13 says, so brace your minds for action. Keep your balance and set your hope completely on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Yeshua the Messiah. Like obedient children, do not be shaped by the cravings you had formerly in your ignorance. Instead, just like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in everything you do. For it is written, Kedoshim, holy ones you shall be, for I am Kadosh. 
And he goes down to verse 20. Now that you have purified your souls in obedience to the truth, leading to sincerity, brotherly love, love one another fervently from a pure heart. You have been born again, not from perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. So as believers, as non-believers, before we accept Messiah's sacrifice, whether we're Jew or Gentile, it really doesn't matter. Before we accept Messiah's sacrifice, we are sinners, we're fallen, we're despicable, we're disgusting, right? We don't suddenly stop being sinners, unfortunately. We're still human, we're still in a fallen world, we're still going to sin. It's just the way it works. Not a good thing, it's just how it is. But we have the ability to repent. So before we accept Messiah, we are fallen, we're disgusting, we're despicable, we're sinners. We are the first generation of Israel. But when we accept Messiah, we move into resurrection and new life, being born anew in the promises of God, being born anew in the resurrection of Yeshua coming out of the water. And we're able to be the second generation of Israel that's able to walk in and take possession of the promises of God. We become part of the kingdom of God. We become part of the eternal kingdom of the heavenlies. We become a part of the new Jerusalem and all of the undefiable, uncorruptible inheritance that is awaiting us is there and we have a portion in it and we are able to take possession of it and to walk here and now in this fallen world in the recognition of that possession that is awaiting us and the power of the Spirit of God that provides that, that uh, uh, guarantee of the future that is awaiting us. We have the ability to walk in the power of the Ruach HaKodesh as if we're in the kingdom of God now because you know what? We are. The rest of the world may not be, but we are. We go back to Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall I say then, Paul says, are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? May it never be. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who were immersed in Messiah Yeshua were immersed into his death? Therefore, we were buried together with him through immersion into death in order that just as Messiah was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have become joined together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also will be joined together in his resurrection. Knowing your old man was crucified with him so that the sinful body might be done away with so we no longer serve sin. For he who has died, uh, he who has died is set free from sin. The old man, the old generation of who we used to be, the fallen man buried in sin and darkness, unable to walk in the light of Messiah, has been hung on the cross with Messiah. We literally took part in the death of Messiah. We literally took part in the burial of Messiah. And when we arise out of the meekful waters, out of the immersion waters, we arise in the resurrection, literally in the resurrection of Messiah. And we come out a new generation of ourselves. We come out a renewed generation. We come out cleansed, washed, free to be able to not live in sin. And every time that we revert back to who we used to be, every time things seem to get a little tough and rough for us and we revert back to where we used to be, it's just like Peter going back fishing instead of trusting in what God had planned. Because guess what? While they're out there fishing, where is it that Yeshua appears to them? Right where they're out fishing. And he reveals himself to them and they go, oh, how do we not see you? And how often is it when we find ourselves outside of the will of God, we turn back around in the right direction, and the Lord is just waiting. 
And he reveals himself to us. We weren't able to see him before because we were still buried in our old man when we should have been walking in the new man. We should have been walking in the promises of God and the blessing of God and the truth of who God is and his salvation. We should have been walking in the light of Messiah, which is what it takes to draw people to the kingdom of God. But instead, we revert back to who we used to be. We go back to like the first generation of Israel who built a calf, a golden calf. And so this is the God that led us out of Egypt. And the Lord says, no, we got to do this all over again. Listen, I'm going to get your attention. I want you just to turn back around. You know, in Hebrew, the word for repentance is teshuvah. In English, in the body of Messiah, we're way too lax on understanding of what this really means. We talk about repentance as believers today, and we talk about the idea of, oh, God, I messed up. Sorry about that. And keep on going just to do it again and again and again and again and again and again. You know, my kids leave. My son loves Legos. He hit that stage where he just loves Legos. It's, it's awesome to step on them. <laughs> sarcasm. But he loves Legos, and he leaves them out. It doesn't matter how many times we tell him, look, when you're done playing with them, put them up. First off, you won't lose any. Second off, I won't step on them. That's the most important part. I won't step on them. But we tell him, you put them up. So finally they'll go and he'll gather them up and he'll put them up and whatever. And then a couple of days later, go out and play with them again and leaves them out again. He's like, dude, we told you just put them back up when you're done with them. You're in the backyard. You're not even playing with them. Just put them back up over and over and over again. This is the mindset in the body of Messiah in the 21st century. We have a repentance. Oh, Lord, I left my Legos out again. Sorry about that. Probably going to do it tomorrow too, but you know, hey, whatever. We just keep going back and back. But in Hebrew, the word teshuvah, it comes from the word shuv, which means to return. means that you're walking the wrong direction. You recognize you're walking the wrong direction. You stop in your tracks. You turn around 180 degrees and you just walk back to the loving embrace of your Heavenly Father. That's repentance. That's what the Lord wants from us. That's what He desires. We have been born anew in Him. You ever use the GPS? You know, I, I, I rely on them because you know, I grew up with cell phones and I can't think for myself anymore. I rely on GPS and I use it all the time. And you know, it's really funny. I'm waiting for the day that my GPS unit starts cussing at me because I refuse to turn around when it tells me to. You know, it's just every couple of blocks. All right, turn around as soon as it's safe. Turn around as soon as it's safe. Turn around. It's like, but I know that there's a better way this way. I'll just turn around and safe. Turn around and safe. That's the Lord just tapping us on the shoulder. He's our GPS unit. This is our GPS unit. He's tapping us on the shoulder. Hey, this isn't who you are anymore. You're a new man. You're a new creation. You have now entered into the inheritance and the promises of God. You can't do this anymore. The man you used to be is dead. He's gone. You can't revert back to that anymore. As quick as it is possible, make a U-turn. Make the Shuvah and return back to me. You and I as believers in Messiah are no longer the old man. The old man has been hung on the cross with Yeshua and the new man has resurrected out of the waters of Mersha, out of the Mikva pool, fresh and alive in him. No longer just with his breath of life breathing in our lungs, but with his spirit of life alive within our hearts. For a very distinct and unique purpose to draw others into the kingdom of God. But if all they see when they see us is the old man, if all they see when they see us is the first generation, then they don't see God. Because where they're going to see God is in the new generation, the renewed generation, the regenerated new man. 
who has now come out of the waters in the resurrection of Messiah. We keep thinking if we just do it the way we've always done it, everything will be okay. And the Lord's saying it wasn't okay before. How about you try something new? Shocker, I know it's a hard thing to believe, but if you just do what I ask of you, it might be easier. Same thing I say to my kids. If you just pick your Legos up, it'll be easier because you won't lose them. And I won't step on them. We won't have this conversation again. The Lord is our Heavenly Father. And when I look at my relationship with my children, that's how we should see ourselves as, as being that example of the Lord, our Heavenly Father, to our children. But as a father, I have this unique opportunity to be able to have a new perspective of what that really means. More so because I'm a father, I have a unique perspective of seeing my children and understanding God's perspective of me. Not only how much he loves me, but I love my children unconditionally. Literally nothing could ever destroy my love for my kids. Ever. But there's correction that has to be made sometimes. There's lessons that have to be taught. And sometimes that's the way it is with our Heavenly Father. There's lessons that have to be taught. But those lessons are so that we return. You know, every time I have to correct my children, every time I have to punish my children, the greatest joy about it is not that I'm correcting them or punishing them, but that I know that I've got a hug waiting for them. To know that as soon as they're done crying, even while they're crying sometimes, it depends on how annoyed I am with the noise, and I just want to make it stop. But no, I... <laughs> But as soon as I'm done correcting them, there's a hug waiting for them. It's been there all along. Not to know loves to hug. And he'll just, Daddy, hug. Daddy, hug. Daddy, hug. Dude, anytime. Come here. But I get to go and say, Buddy, come here. Let me love on you. I love you. I know I just had to get on to you. I know I just had to correct you. But I still love you. And I corrected you because I love you. Love you. I corrected you because I don't want you to have to go through this again. I don't want you to have to experience this trial over again. And this is what the Lord says, look, I've made you new. I've refreshed you. I've cleaned you up. I've taken you out of the pits and the mar and the grime, and I've washed you new in the blood of the Lamb. You've been resurrected to be something greater than what you used to be. You've been resurrected to be what I've always wanted you to be, what I created you to be in the first place. The Lord's standing here today crying out for you. Each and every one of us simply saying, be the new man. The new man in me. Not the old man. Walk away from the old man. The old man died in the wilderness. They didn't get to see the promises that God had in store for the people of Israel. They didn't get to walk in those promises. But the second generation did. The new generation, the renewed generation did. They got to go in and take claim of the promises of God. And the Lord wants you to experience that. He wants you to understand what it feels like to walk in the fullness of his promises, of his inheritance. Because as a believer in Messiah, washed by the blood of the Lamb, there is a heavenly inheritance awaiting you. And there's a guarantee of that inheritance and the power of the Spirit of God in your lives today. And the only way we're going to see that guarantee move and flow through us and in us and affect other people is if we walk in the new man, not the old man. As we walk, as Israel walked in these last couple of weeks before they crossed the Jordan River, in faithfulness to him. They learned the lessons of their forefathers in the book of Deuteronomy. You know what? We got a lot of lessons of our forefathers here. 
so that we don't make those mistakes again. We have memories of the mistakes we've made in our past so that we don't make those mistakes again. So I want to encourage you this morning. When you feel the sense of that old man coming on, when you feel the rise of that, that human inclination, the sinful inclination arising, listen and heed the call of the Lord to walk in the power of the new man, to walk in the reality of the second generation. Because the first generation, the old man, cannot see the promises of God. They cannot inherit the promises of God. Only the new man made clean in him can. And we must walk in the new man. Abrahamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Father, I thank you that no matter how messed up we let our lives get, Father, that no matter how far we have fallen, that you were always there with your arms wide open waiting for us. Father, I thank you that you love us unconditionally. Father, that is not only when we're walking in your ways, but Father, always your love is present. Lord, I thank you that you are constantly calling us not only into Shabbat, but you are constantly calling us to be faithful to you and to see your faithfulness flow through us and others. Father, I thank you that in spite of the mistakes that we've made in our lives, the lives that we've harmed, the people that we have destroyed, the damage that we have done, that, Lord, you have called us to speak life into others. That you have called us to rebuild others. You've called us to uplift others. That you've called us to bring others into the reality of the light of your kingdom. That you've called us to show others how to die on the cross have their old man die on the cross for the issue of the making, come out of the meekful waters, out of the immersion waters, fully restored in the resurrection of Yeshua. Father, we thank you for your love, for your mercy, for your compassion that is ever enduring. And Father, we thank you for your loving embrace even when we mess up. Lord, I pray that you speak 